0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today I'm joined on New Books Russian and Eurasian Studies by Professor Bridget O'Keefe. Bridget, thanks for coming today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. It's an honor and a privilege, and I'm grateful for the interview today, but also for the extraordinary, the reams of great interviews you've done with many of our colleagues and friends.
0: Well, well, thanks, Bridget. So I really want to just get right into the book uh, with first a short bio uh, for our listeners. Bridget O'Keefe is professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. She's the author of Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia, published by Bloomsbury 2021, the book we'll talk about today. Bridget has also published New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union, published by University of Toronto Press in 2013. Uh, And toward the end, we'll talk about her manuscript, which is uh, titled The Multi-Ethnic Soviet Union and Its Demise for Bloomsbury's Russian Shorts book series. So I have a lot of questions for you, Professor O'Keefe, about... Your interest in Esperanto and the origin story that you have. So how did this come to be? What what signaled your interest in the topic? Uh,
1: I have a feeling that my answer to this question is in some ways inevitably going to disappoint, especially for those who have some aching desire for me to out myself as some kind of long-standing Esperantist, per se. That's actually not the origin story, so spoiler alert from the get-go. Um, I think, Stephen, that anyone who's, anyone who's at all kind of um, interacted with me or listened to me talk about the types of things that excite my historical imagination, or even has just looked at you know my published work and the titles, um, might easily kind of pick up on the fact that I have a certain kind of penchant or predilection to study topics that most people um, would probably rather quickly dismiss um, to the margins of historical study and analysis. I'm very much drawn to topics and to historical subjects who have otherwise been um, persistently overlooked by historians, especially those historians who who think that you kind of have to focus in on some kind of big, hard-hitting, macro, often-discussed topic to have anything kind of flashy or important to offer to historiographical debates or the study of history writ large. So. Um, I was drawn to Esperanto for a number of reasons, but one of the things I think that first kind of captured my imagination about Esperanto and Esperantists was that it kind of registered even in my own personal imagination as this like quirky little understudied emblem emblem of like a foregone time. And um, personally, how I think my, I, I first had the idea to maybe write this project was actually when I was an early graduate student at NYU, and I used to do my comps readings and my kind of course prep work at a little cafe in the West Village that is no more, unfortunately, that was called Esperanto and had an Esperanto green star on the window. Um, this, again, did not lead me to a life of Esperantism, but it sparked an interest. And the more I thought about Esperanto and Esperantists, the more I realized how um, the phenomenon, uh, phenomenon of Esperanto and the actual kind of people who have given life to the Esperoma, Esperanto movement over the past century and a half were interesting to me in some other ways. I was particularly drawn to how a movement, a global border crossing transnational movement that linked human beings otherwise divided by all kinds of barriers and divides could kind of forge friendships um, uh, by means of letter writing and very oftentimes very kind of personal and meaningful correspondence. Um, so there were all kinds of things there that I just, they just kind of like spoke to my own very distinctive historian's me, as as we, as we might say, and to my own kind of distinct constellation of, of things that again, excite my historical imagination. And so after I conclude my first book project, I kind of did an exploratory trip to Russia to start digging in in the archives and the libraries. And I thought, for sure, these are kind of people um, in a project that is fascinating to me and I wanna know more, I wanna learn more. And I want to do what I always do when I um, try to focus in on these topics that people otherwise dismiss, And I want to make people who are otherwise shunted to the margins and the footnotes of history kind of like have their day and to allow them to illuminate larger phenomenon, larger themes of Russian, Soviet, but also world history that um, they're not marginal to, but actually kind of they, they tend to exemplify something if we just give them a listen and, and pay attention mm-hmm. to them a bit hmm I, I think that's
0: a great start. I, I have a, a lot of questions lined up a, about this transnational dimension of, of your research. And you know, of course, I'm interested in, in epistles and epistolary geography. Um I, I wanted to ask you if if you could lay out for our listeners how you designed the book. I, I know that there are um, five chapters, and you have an introduction, and, and you talk about um, our, our wonderful, you know, sort of founder, Zamenhof, and, and how one might position him in the late imperial Russian context. But what, what is the design of your book? You have those five chapters, an introduction, and an epilogue.
1: Sure. First, actually, if if you'll indulge me, I want to say one word about the title right? Um, and and the kind of choice that I made in terms of the title when I called it Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia. Um, I do explain this in the introduction of the book, but I was, I kind of went for efficiency and purpose in terms of how I chose to think about revolutionary Russia as a chronology. And effectively, the book covers um, the time period from the Russia's kind of momentous era of great reforms, um, a time in which Zamenhof came of age and was profoundly um, transformed and influenced by this kind of pulsing ethnic social political and economic kind of disruptions that were racking a czarist empire that was like increasingly and very apparently in crisis Um, and then it kind of bridges the revolutionary divide and goes up until what is ultimately very tragic but also in some ways in many ways altogether expected the demise of the Esperanto movement in the early Soviet Union during the era of Stalin's purges. So the two kind of chronological bookends for the book, and that which I've articulated as being a kind of broadly conceived revolu- era of revolutionary Russia is from the era of great reforms until um, the Soviet Esperantist movement's demise during the era of purges. Um, like you said, I, I begin actually with a story and an exploration of the origins of Esperanto, uh, which many people, right, who only know kind of fleeting things about Esperanto in and of itself, um, its origins are squarely rooted in the um, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional borderlands, uh, western borderlands of the Tsarist empire, and Esperanto, this international auxiliary language that captivated um, men and women's imaginations, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but continues to capture people's imaginations still today. Um, it was the it was the creation of an otherwise obscure Jewish eye doctor from, from Bialystok named Ludovic Zamenhof. And the first chapter, uh, which we can talk about at, at greater length, um, subsequently is a kind of effort to understand Esperanto, not just as a language, but also as a philosophical and ultimately utopian vision for transforming Russia and the world, cannot be understood outside of the context of the late Imperial Russia, um, in which Zamenhof was, um, to which Zamenhof was native. The second chapter moves to um, Uh, a group of ordinary Russian, imperial Russian subjects that I refer to repeatedly as grassroots internationalists of late Imperial Russia who have not yet fully received their historical due. (laughs) And these are kind of ordinary uh, women and men of um, educated uh, or semi-educated Russian society who were drawn to this international language Project for their own wide variety of kind of personal and ideological reasons, and who saw in it the potential to use this international auxiliary language to network themselves into a a wide array of kind of emerging um, transnational social networks in an era of really fraught but palpable globalization. And I try to kind of uncover how and and why, and and in a wide variety of ways, these ordinary Esperantists of late Imperial Russia found meaning and purpose, not only in the language itself or the relationships they forged um, with fellow Esperantists all throughout the world, um, but also the kind of meaning they found in this language's seeming ability to help them transform themselves into global global moderns and global citizens. the third chapter, I don't know if this—if uh, I'm revealing too much, but the third chapter is my favorite chapter. And in the third, <laughs> the third chapter, um, I kind of look at what happens in the early years of the Bolshevik Revolution. And in particular, I look at how those ordinary Esperantists of late Imperial Russia, uh, primarily the kind of like most youthful among them at the time that Russia is rocked, Um, in 1917 by these series of revolutions, I look at how they kind of struggle at first, but ultimately really creatively start to adapt um, pre-revolutionary Esperantist ideals and visions to the kind of new dictates and the new impulses of an emerging and ever-evolving Bolshevik culture. And this brought me very quickly um, to how Esperantists and revolutionary Russia kind of trained their focus instinctively and understandably on this novel um, Bolshevik organization institution created in 1919. The Mm -hmm. common turn, the (laughs) Communist international, right? Like it makes sense to anyone, right? Like here's our moment, right? We're like advocates and adepts and like ardent defenders of this you know, revolutionary new linguistic technology and international auxiliary language, right? Like now is our time, now is our moment. And so they make this great bid um, to plea for Esperanto to become the language of, of international communism. And this led me into you know, by means of a wide variety of primary sources, memoirs, transcripts, et cetera, it led me into what was, as apparently came clear to me, kind of the dusty, the dingy, and ultimately the very fraught corridors and hallways and and lecture rooms in which international congr- um, common comintern debates and meetings took place. And it drew me into what I had never really contemplated before or studied before, which is, you know, how the dilemmas of... Um, linguistic diversity and the challenges of linguistic justice, right, played out in the halls of this Bolshevik headquarters, this intended Bolshevik headquarters of world revolution, and it, um, it really crystallized for me one of the larger, the larger motives behind writing this book, which was to think very concretely and think very intensively about language in histories of internationalism and how languages um, both kind of give new opportunities for people to communicate and collaborate across borders but it also can inhibit right and provide these sometimes very insurmountable barriers for um, communication and collaboration Um, the fourth chapter (laughs) looks at um how Esperantists once kind of denied their pride of place in the Comintern, otherwise attempt to make um, bids for Esperanto's utility and contributions to interwar Soviet cultural diplomacy. And here too, I look at how the kind of Esperantist goals were ultimately pretty mismatched with what the Soviet Hmm. state's goals were for interwar cultural diplomacy. And uh, the fifth chapter looks at, the dilemmas of foreign language study and foreign language learning in the era of Stalin's first um, uh, five-year plans and the Stalinist strive to industrialize. And how, right, the fifth chapter is, is meant to kind of highlight the worsening struggles of the Esperantists to find a foothold um, and to find legitimacy within the early Soviet state. But it is also a chapter that is designed to illuminate the kind of ambiguous position that foreign languages occupied in the Soviet imagination and also kind of the Soviet repertoire, the Soviet toolbox of internationalism, right? On the one hand, the Soviet state is kind of acknowledging and making efforts towards um, teaching ordinary Soviet citizens languages, foreign languages, that would be instrumental to Soviet success in industrialization, primarily German, English, and to a lesser extent, French. But there's also from the get-go awareness, right? Because do we want Soviet citizens to be able to communicate freely with the capitalist West in a language of of Western capitalism? And um, as we already alluded to earlier, the book ends rather um, tragically uh, with the demise of the, Soviet Esperantist movement during the era of purges and terror, and in particular, right, the the way in which uh, Soviet Esperantists were in many ways sitting ducks as soon as like the campaign went out to go kind of arrest and neutralize. Right. what was imagined as to be a kind of metastasizing web of foreign international Trotskyite conspiracy and how all it took was you know, the arrest of a few pivotal leaders of the Soviet Esperantist movement to kind of unleash a tidal wave of incriminations and denunciations that led to a whole bunch of ordinary people getting arrested and executed or else banished to the uh, gulag for, for the alleged crimes of engaging in international conspiracy via an international language. I,
0: I think, Bridget, you, you've covered an incredible amount of ground as this continuum has, has stretched. So I like the fact that you have bookended it with the great reforms and, and ended it with, with Stalin. And maybe to that, I would kind of add the Spanish Civil War and the experiences of, of Esperantists right in the, the late 30s, um, what, what goes on. I, I wanted to return to a couple of the big points that that you've made. And you mentioned your favorite chapter, and I I want to really talk about that. Um, But in chapter one, you, you, I think, have an interesting take on on Zamenhof. Um, People who are even like sort of involved in in Esperanto or Esperantist societies and like using Esperantist apps on their phone, they, they might not be familiar with his early life and his you know, relationship with his father who had different plans for him and the publication of Gil-el-ism, Hillelism. Could you talk a, a little bit about maybe how Zamenhof was a product of the empire's, as you say, multi-ethnic and multi-confessional um, diversity? How, how do you read that?
1: Absolutely. Now, when Zamenhof launched Esperanto um, by publishing the first kind of pamphlet, the first kind of primer for his international um, auxiliary language. He published that first pamphlet, he published that first primer in Russian from where he was living in late Imperial Russia in 1887, and that was Warsaw. Um, And in that kind of First pamphlet, that first Esperantist text, right? Esperantists call the first book. Um, he hinted at, in a very oblique way, right? Some kind of underlying, an underlying set of what for Zamenhof very personally were a series of vexed questions that were rooted very particularly in his experiences as a Jewish subject of the Tsarist empire, and someone who had been born onto the western edges of the Pale of Settlement, and whose family had kind of um, spent time hiding in a cellar in Warsaw, while kind of waves of anti-Semitic violence kind of crashed through their neighborhood in 1881. But part of the reason why um, Zamenhof's own very animated and, and kind of very overriding political and ideological purpose behind giving the world um, this international auxiliary language, those reasons, that philosophy that undergirded the whole project, he in many ways kind of muted and obscured the, them in this original pamphlet which was otherwise explained and defended and offered to the world as here i am dr hopeful giving the world an international auxiliary language because the world has a certain practical logistical need at this precise moment in world history for an international auxiliary language that can transcend that can transcend linguistic barriers and divides right in an era of galloping uh, globalization and internationalization, right? He talked about, he offered up Esperanto in many ways there as a kind of practical utility. It's going to help us to, you know, send one another invoices and buy goods and exchange expertise and exchange ideas. But within all of that original um, explanation for the project, he hinted at the idea that in a land, in a place, in a country, where there are people of all different types of ethnicities and all different types of religions and all different types of languages, it might be useful, it might be kind of, um, it might be a balm to have a language that could transcend those sometimes painful divides of ethnic um, ethnicity and religion, um, and nationality, right? So there was just a mere hint, right? Uh, Zamenhof himself kind of kept quiet about the larger philosophical vision that undergirded this project. But that larger philosophical vision, Zamenhof himself would later make very clear was rooted in his hometown of Bialystok. And as he always later told the story of Esperantist origins, he recalled his childhood of um, living in this very kind of, Outpost of, of the Russian Empire, where multilingualism was like a banal fact of life, as as um, a place in which he was humiliated, and he even uses in one point the word tortured by the reality that in his hometown there were all of these different divided groups of people, right, that who otherwise were neighbors but who scoffed at one another, who uh, shouted insults, so who bickered, right, and he understood those divides, that hostility as um, being rooted in the ethnic and linguistic differences that kept them from coming together as a kind of harmonious, unified collective of human beings, right? So <laughs> Zamenhof is already as a young man like, uh, and is like an obsessive language lover trying to think of a way of like, how could we use an international language Uh, To get people who otherwise see the world in different ways, who speak different languages, who have different faiths, who have different values, maybe giving them some transcendent international auxiliary language would allow them to not just see past those differences, but to speak about those differences and in the process of speaking about those differences on a kind of same equal plane, uh, an equal linguistic plane of using an international language, um, begin to better appreciate their shared humanity and come to mutual understanding, right? So this, right, even in in its very precocious way, when he was a child was uh, an idea that he was chasing after, but it was after his own kind of university experiences, um, which, which converged with um, the pogroms of 1881 and 1883, where his own kind of very personal sense of anguish about the anti-Semitism that kind of structured and suffused his life in late Imperial Russia seemed to kind of give a big impulse or a big jolt to that overriding sense of mm, purpose that that's he a great had. Point. Right? Yeah. How to how to find some way to get human beings to look at one another. Not as Jews and Catholics, Russians and Poles, but instead how to get human beings to look at one another, to interact with one another first and in every instance first as human beings, right, as, as shared human beings who might be able um, to learn from one another and who might be able to um find purpose with one another. Yeah. I, I'm I'm
0: I'm really intrigued, Bridget, as you develop your argument um in chapters two and three. Chapter two, I, I love the title, is called Pen Pills Dreamers and Globetrotters. Um I, I, I love how you describe um the movement in terms of clubs and individuals and journals and and maybe fellow thinkers or fellow travelers, you know, sort of first from a very Eurocentric universe, which is obviously the universe from which Zamenhof emerges, and then to the point where there's this address book where you've got people as far flung as like Madagascar and Trinidad and and far from the Russian empire. So I guess my question would be looking up through this sort of story of a couple of decades, the 1890s and and through to the 1905 revolution, how, how you see this movement emerging globally with all of these, these technologies. I guess, would you describe this, this language movement, because it has to be funded ultimately as, as a technology, as a global technology across these borders?
1: Stephen, I hope you. I hope you'll forgive me if I geek out a little bit about this, but I. This is geek one of the reasons. Away, why, <laughs> Go for this it. Is, this is one of the reasons why I was so drawn to this to this project, right? Like, if you think about it, I do talk in the, in this in this segment of the book so much about these these kind of late 19th century and early 20th century uh, social networks. But it's completely fascinating to me the creative ways by which not just Zamenhof, but like ordinary people all over the world found new and interesting ways to like link up with one another and to like forge lifelong friendships without many of them will never meet in real life. Sometimes they do because after 1905, they have these annual Esperantist um, World Congresses, but like that's for the elite of the elite, the most moneyed of the Esperantist movement, right? Your average Esperantist, whether you're in Voronezh or you're in Tokyo, right? um, Primarily your Esperantism, your kind of being networked into these wider Esperantist movements, it is being achieved by means of subscribing to and participating in a transnationally circulating and sometimes transnationally produced Esperantist periodical literature. But even more than that, right, that periodical literature is there to kind of help um, also grow the movement by allowing people to find one another via classified ads. And there is also something that you mentioned, um, a tradition that Zamenhof himself started and kind of lovingly attended to, a tradition of compiling international directories yeah address
0: right yes. the address book. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> now it's um I mean this is part of Zamenhof's own genius and that same pamphlet that I talked about at length earlier he included in the back pages a series of tear out coupons and basically they were like promissory notes and you were if you were interested in the project, you were supposed to fill out the form the fill out the form and this tear out note and include your name. And your postal address where you could be reached. And it said, um, like, it was a pre printed text from Zamenhof's own creation, like, basically, I promise if 10 million people take up this cause that I will give myself over to Esperanto. But And he had the kind of um, address on the other side so they could send in these promissory notes to Dr. Esperanto in Warsaw. <laughs> so uh, war, uh, in Warsaw, Zamenhof is going to his postal box and collecting these coupons. And I mean, it's it's a, just an extraordinary idea, like in an age where, you know, there's not an in, there's not the Internet, right? Like, how are these people going right. to find each other and give life, give breath, give meaning, give voice, give words to this language that in and of itself becomes an international creation because Zamenhof designed it so that like ordinary people could grow its vocabulary. So he starts compiling all of these names and addresses, of course, the first um address address book directory is like there's like a thousand names and 919 of them are from the russian empire but in subsequent editions right you see more and more people from australia you see people from oregon oregon or from uh where i am in new york and it grows and grows and grows that's one mechanism whereby um find one another take advantage of this like emerging normalization of of postal Mm -hmm. services and international postal exchange but the other mechanism whereby they found one another that so fascinated me and that so gave me a clue into this grassroots internationalism this global mindedness this like creative global mindedness is in these transnational periodicals they would put they would place basically classified ads for pen pals of shared interest.
0: Yeah, I love that part. (laughs) You
1: have Esperantists from all over the world saying like, I'm so-and-so, here's my mailing address. I'd love to correspond with anyone about women's equality. I'd love to correspond with people about the workers' movement. I'd love to correspond with people about Zionism. Sometimes it was just like hey, I'd really like to exchange colorful postcards because I'd like to see what it looks like where you are. Like, I'm never going to travel to your country. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of my favorite ones in terms of like the certain types of phrases that they began to adopt. One of my favorite ones was, um, I want to I want to discuss using Esperanto, quote, life's vexed questions. <laughs> and the other one that <laughs> I loved of was... <laughs> <laughs> That's burning
0: questions. <laughs>
1: yes. The other one I loved was, I want to correspond with other Esperantists because I'm trying to figure out my worldview. Like they just wanted Mm, to debate the burning ideas, right? Like the big topics, the big ideas. And they understood that, you know, they might be in their own little small, humble corner of a far flung place from people that they're corresponding with, but they understood their kind of own local and personal interests and concerns as being tied up and entangled in a world that was shrinking. Right. So, um, it was, it's, it's, it's actually just extraordinary to think about the creativity of the ordinary people who built these, you know, social networks in that time. And that led to, you know, the creation, the foundation of lifelong friendships between people who never meet in real life. I I have,
0: I have to ask you a question uh, about Esperanto as a lingua franca, I, you describe it really interestingly as, as an international second language, an auxiliary language. But, you know, of course, like there are other languages that are competing, that German as a language of international socialism, Russian as the language imagined by many as, as the global communist future. And then, of course, there are the French who object to Zamenhof when he gives his, his speech back in uh, in, in the nineteen. 19- and, you know, Yiddish might be another language that we could count in this category of, of international languages of communication. So, how I mean, how does Esperanto get hooked up, connected to the global communist movement? What what are the sort of significant moments, as you mentioned, with the Comintern in, in 1919 or the congresses that you're covering throughout your book?
1: So, When I mentioned earlier that in the early years of the revolution, um, Esperantists, primarily kind of youthful Esperantists, uh, who had kind of been um, introduced to the movement according to kind of like pre-revolutionary ideals, pre-revolutionary principles, kind of like a high placed value on mutual understanding and brotherhood of peoples, right? (laughs) These types of kind of, Claims that would that would were made for the language in the pre-revolutionary era were the types of claims that could easily be dismissed by a skeptical or a haughty Bolshevik official as kind of like mm-hmm, bourgeois mm-hmm. sentimentality, right? Like we're not even talking about utopian luxury; we're talking about like flat-out bourgeois sentimentality. So the socialists who had in, in in the early Soviet Union who had to find their ground and find their language to explain and kind of marry the ideals of Bolshevism to Esperantism, they ultimately make the argument that, um, well, there's like an argument they make on on several different levels as to why Esperanto is inherently like the number one most logical choice for an international proletarian language right that's my question right yeah they take it in a completely different direction than than Zamenhof had made right like Zamenhof was like this is an international language about um, forging community and all the rest and the early Soviet Esperantists have to kind of embrace the logic of Esperanto must serve as a necessary weapon of class struggle right across right. Um, national and linguistic borders and so they make the argument right like sure German is the lingua franca of the European left um sure a lot of people would argue that English might make for a great global language um yeah we know the French are really committed <laughs> to like digging right. in their heels about but they say right all of that is all of those inclinations towards taking a national language and making it an international language. They argue that is symptomatic of bourgeois diplomatic relations and bourgeois conceptions of international relations that are, that reek of kind of this counter-revolutionary spirit, but are also Mm -hmm. antithetical to the needs, the very real needs of an international proletariat to be able to communicate effectively with one another, right? And they make the argument that, they also kind of like paint, um, you know, uh, national languages or learning foreign languages as, you know, in pre-revolutionary times, this would have been the preserve of the elite, right?
0: Right, Latin and Greek at the gymnasium, (laughs) right?
1: Exactly, exactly. They make the argument, right, like, look, your average worker might have a few years of rudimentary education under their belt. They certainly didn't have, like someone like Collins, for example, like a fleet of governesses and nannies who were there to teach her a range of uh, variety of different foreign languages, no less teacher fluency in the mannerisms of elite behavior, right? They say like the, the workers, workers in in revolutionary Russia, but workers all over the world, they need an international language that they can Quickly pick up without a lot of prep work without a lot of without a lot of effort with a lot a lot of um, prior training in foreign language learning, right, so they argue kind of two things as a kind of the larger kind of claims for Esperanto as a proletarian language one is that it it's not stained it 's not stained by um, bourgeois traditions of international relations and diplomacy, but also the claim is I'm not, I've never been persuaded by it, right, that somehow Esperanto is somehow going to be the inherently easiest language for an undereducated or semi-literate worker to suddenly take up self-study of and to be able to speak or write in fluently. But um, in many ways, they they do make the argument uh, that there is something kind of inherently proletarian in in Esperanto and that it's a sensibly easy to learn, but also that it is not rooted in national chauvinisms. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm I'm astonished actually reading, you know, how many people from your book who got involved in the promotion of Esperanto during the 1920s. I, I think everybody should read your book for for a lot of reasons, but this reason especially because th- there's something electrifying about. Esperanto when, when people discover it and you know it sometimes the Bolsheviks and, and others are, are using religious language to describe this Lev Kopolev, you have the the statement that he describes Esperanto as a beautiful sacrament um, I I'm, I'm like astonished by by this because it you know it in many ways it goes back to what Zamenhof said when he described this as a kind of inner inner idea um, and I wonder if you might talk a bit about that as it develops through the, the 20s and eventually into the Stalin period, all of these aspects of the movement, is, is it something that's kind of missionizing? Is it, you know, in favor with all of this technology of, of the agglutinative constructed artificial neutral language um, to, to aim for something? Is it, is it a set of values? How would you describe it?
1: Esperanto was and is all of those things, but I actually love this question because I think it actually helps us to understand both um, its relative popularity in the 20s and 30s, and it also helps us to appreciate its kind of like stunning and tragic demise during this this late Stalinist or late 1930s time of purges and terror, right? This blend of xenophobia and internationalism um, during this period. It is all of those things that you mentioned, right? And It was designed to be all of those things at once. It was supposed to be a kind of practical utility. It was supposed to make um, basic uh, communication more effective and easier, but it was always, right? And this, this does transcend the revolutionary divide, even if, Bolshevik Esperantists find new ways of describing and talking about that kind of elemental kind of exhilaration, that intoxication that so many um, Esperantists were drawn to in terms of the prospects or the possibilities it gave them to um, reach out to the world meaningfully and to like chase their variety of dreams, but also like forge these real connections with people. Um, I think that when well, you talked about the quote that I use, that's um, from Lev Kopolev's memoir, and he talks about Esperanto and hearing about it as a young schoolboy in the early Soviet Union and thinking about it as like this beautiful sacrament. Um, these adjectives that so many of the people were drawn to Esperanto, they talk about it in these you know, exuberant, kind of grandiose, grand eloquent terms, exhilaration and, and um, excitement, being dazzled by the opportunities that it seemed to represent. The other thing that I loved about Kopolev's, um memory of first learning about Esperanto as a Soviet, young Soviet schoolboy from a teacher was he? He describes how this teacher brought to school one day, like a, a yeah. knapsack full of yes. his Esperantist correspondence, right? And He's like showing off all the todos, right? <laughs> yeah. all the right. post, all the postcards, all the colorful stamps. And Kopolev says, "I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says it was as if you could hold this correspondence, right? This pen pal correspondence, in your hands, and." inhale Paris, right? You could inhale New York, you could inhale, or you could at least imagine that you were inhaling it, right? And so right. I think this this way in which Esperanto just emancipated ordinary people's ability to imagine other places, other cultures, other worlds, and imagine themselves as in communion and in conversation with those other worlds and these other peoples that they would never meet in real life. I think despite all the practical arguments that have been made and have long been made for Esperanto, it is that exhilaration. It is that uh, imagination unleashed that really gets most people excited about Esperanto. And ultimately, this is a lot of what makes Esperanto unsavory for Soviet officials, particularly going into the first five-year plan in the 1930s, right? It's like... Um, okay, maybe there might be some marginal utility that we can use Esperanto maybe to translate some blueprints or some engineering manuals, but it's actually pretty shady from the, ultimately from the Soviet mm-hmm. state perspective to imagine right ordinary Soviet citizens engaging in what on its face appears to be at best right an egotistical naval gazing right unproductive like whimsical eccentric pastime right when those are efforts that could be best deployed towards the kind of more profitable gain of advancing the causes of the soviet state that's in its best case right what esperanto Mm -hmm. looks to skeptical soviet officials in the worst case esperanto looks like wow we have a, a bunch of kind of selfish unregulated um, yeah,
0: that's a good probably point. eccentric
1: yeah. people who are investing all of their time and energy in making, quote unquote, friends with foreigners. Right.
0: right in a language right.
1: that is not known to most people. Right. Like, what are they talking about? And um, there is so much capacity here, this is how the kind of rhetoric starts to build during the early years of the first five-year plan. There's too much potential here for subversion, right? There's too much potential here for wrecking, but there's also too much potential there for, again, kind of a very individual, what was understood to be an individualistic very kind of petty bourgeois eccentric pastime. Right? So the Esperantists were kind of exhorted and disciplined and instructed like over and over and over again by the Komsomol and these other Soviet bureaucratic institutions. Like, you need to quit it with this individual pen pal exchange, right? Like <laughs> this is mm-hmm. not yeah. Soviet, right? It's not Soviet. If you're gonna if you're gonna use Esperanto and you're gonna use it patriotically for Soviet purposes, then engage in appropriate collective workers' correspondence, right? And this takes all the joy out of it, right? It takes takes all the joy out of it for the Soviet Esperantins, but it also takes all the joy out of this correspondence for their, their pen pals, right? Their pen pals all over Europe, all over the world start writing back and they're like, why are you sending me talking points like why why don't you write to me or talk to me like a friend right like don't Mm -hmm. send me your newspaper gibberish like i don't need your statistics about soviet industrialization i want to hear how your family's doing right so um it becomes like a huge sticking point in many ways the things that most the things that most appealed to Esperantists about Esperanto, right? That that exhilaration, the capacity for imagination, the capacity for forging these very like immediate, meaningful interpersonal relationships across borders, the idea of like being able to converse with people who speak a different language in an unmediated, transparent way. All of these things end up landing Esperanto in the Soviet bureaucratic imagination as, as being um, belonging to what one official called a dark corner of the cultural front, right? And it doesn't take too much of a leap um, mm. to then paint Esperanto as a language of Trotskyite international conspiracy to bring down the sta- Soviet state.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and your story brings it really right up and in, in through the first five-year plan in, into the purges. And i guess my my final big question for you about the status of of esperanto is what what after that moment um, let's say the purges but also the spanish civil war i mean how do you read the story i guess the the larger kind of epic story of esperanto with all the the skeptics and the xenophobes and the romantics and the promoters
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um but what is what is your take on this because there, there were these moments, after all, where Esperanto got banned, you know, banned from schools. There were moments when it got promoted, let's say, by the League of Nations. Right. Um, there, you know, there were entire parties that were created in the European Parliament built around Esperanto. There's an app that you can now find connecting Esperantists around the globe. So, I mean, how how then, like, say, after this big continuum, revolutionary divide, whatever you want to call it, do you, do you read back the story?
1: Yeah, well, I did I did in a way that I know sometimes probably at the very least irks, maybe even unnerves some kind of Esperantists in the current day. I did title the epilogue where I talk about the decimation of the Soviet Esperantist uh, movement. I titled it The Death of Esperanto. Of course, right? Esperanto doesn't die in the Gulag, right? Esperanto doesn't die in Stalin's Soviet Union. It also didn't die in, in Hitler's Germany, even though it was also banned by the Nazis. Um, Esperanto lives, (laughs) Esperanto will live, right? Um, Esperanto is still vibrant and meaningful for um, an untold and unquantifiable number of people all over the world today, right? Who continue to find meaning and purpose and exhilaration and and networking possibilities through using this language. But I do think that... um, Uh, when Esperanto gets branded a language of subversion and conspiracy in the late 1930s, that it does represent the death of a certain possibility, a certain type of internationalist imagining, maybe one Mm. that was never destined or maybe never likely to kind of hold sway in the Soviet Union. Um, But I also think of that particular death, that particular death of the Soviet Esperantist movement under Stalin is kind of converging um, in, a, in, a, in the same era with what I see is kind of like the precipitous decline in people's willingness to engage imaginatively in what for several generations had been a quote-unquote international language question that people took seriously, not just Esperantists, right? Like as you mentioned, the League of Nations had a commission, just about every international organization that sprouted in this fertile era, late 19th, early 20th century where we just see this blossoming of all these international and intergovernmental organizations. All of these different parties, the technocrats, the diplomats, the bureaucrats, the capitalists, the pacifists, the Catholics, the the socialists, the whole whole realm of it, right? Everyone at least was willing to acknowledge that there was a burning question. We live in an era of entanglement. We live in an era of globalization that we're never going to dial back even if we wanted to. So we're going to have to find some reasonable means by which we can all communicate with one another. And I think that um, it seems... It's easy to forget. It's easy to overlook. Again, it's easy to dismiss it to the margins because we live in an era in which it seems totally overdetermined that we live in an era and a world dominated by global English. But a hundred years ago, for many people, it was inconceivable that we would live yeah. in an era of unrepentant global English.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I
1: think around the same time that the Soviet Esperantists um, suffer and the movement. Uh, the falters under the weight of of Stalinist xenophobia. I think that is symptomatic, or it's at least part of a larger global story of the decline in terms of the willingness, the willingness and the seriousness with which all different types of interested parties took seriously the idea of we need to come up with an explicitly international language, a non-national language that might help us to do the work. Of internationalism variously conceived efficiently but also for some right it was very important that this should not just be about efficiency it should be Mm -hmm. about equity it should be about justice right right? it should be about fairness it should be about inviting everyone to a shared table Um, so Esperanto is part of a larger a larger story of an international language um, question that had a great deal of urgency that was understood to be an urgent question that whose urgency seemed to fall by the wayside or kind of be depleted in in this this these Mm -hmm. these cataclysms of the of the 30s and 40s and
0: and yeah that, that that's that's really interesting for me as you know as a historian of science and technology to think of it um, Esperanto is, is something more than a neutral tool, because mm-hmm. it, as you say, it, it's it's a it's a way of setting up a network or or a platform and communicating. Um, I think that's a really important um, point to consider. And and maybe if the message is socialist internationalism, maybe if the message is something else, transnational yeah. friendship. I think that's that's exceptionally important. Um, and I want to just kind of lead into the. Big last um, sort of promotion and, and, and think of have you tell our listeners here at Nubix Network about your interests, what, what you might be working on now. So it's a two part question. If you could please tell us maybe some authors or, or books um, that, that you've read that you would recommend, and then uh, your current project about the demise of the Soviet Union. Go.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I never tire of having things to say. I knew this one question, I was excited to be able to answer the question about things that like I've read recently or thought about recently that was really exciting and meaningful to me. And I have singled out three things. Um, one, I'll start with the most recent first, is an article that appeared in September 2021, or an essay rather, that appeared in September 2021 issue of Slavic Review in the forum to talk about race and bias in Slavic studies, and the particular essay that I have in mind was authored by Lewis Howard Porter, and the title is The Contingent Problem, A Counter-Narrative on Race and Class in the Field of Slavic Studies. I found the essay extraordinarily moving, but also just so important, right, to have someone speak so kind of plainly and openly and meaningfully about the myths of meritocracy and um, in academia and I just, I just think that it's requisite reading for just about mm-hmm. anyone in the field and um, we should all be rewarded but also take, take the ideas there seriously. Two other books that I, have on my mind these days. One was one that I just spent some time discussing at length with my students, um, and I did not hide from them how much I appreciated this book and how excited I was by it, but it's by Jeff Sahadeo, the voices from the Soviet edge, Southern migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. Um, an extraordinary analysis built on a you know eye-opening series of oral history interviews that Sahadeo had conducted with um, Central Asian and uh, Caucasus migrants to Leningrad and Moscow in the late socialist period, and what their ideas can help us to understand about the dynamics of race and racism in Soviet history, but also to think about, um, you know, for my students, you know, it's still surprising for many of our students to discover that a lot of people think about, the former Soviet Union with a great deal of aching longing and um, yeah. that they remember it as like a period of vibrancy and mobility. And for some, it was shocking, right? To learn via Sahadeo's beautiful book about um, how these migrants thought about the Soviet dream and the possibility, the real possibilities for meritocracy. So that book is, ex- it may not be fresh off the presses, but I think it's an extraordinary book and I've gotten a lot out of it every time I've turned to it. And the other one is a book that I think um, many of us have um, sunk our teeth into over the past year by Krista Goff called "Nested Nationalism: Making oh a Making Nation." I know, right? I rec-
0: <laughs> I've just been recommending this to everyone. It, it swept. It swept the awards and like, yeah, absolutely. And why do you like? Why so. do you like? Why do you like? Why do you like it?
1: <laughs> uh, just, I mean, uh, the first in the first case, like hats off. Right, to this extraordinary scholar whose research was as intrepid as it was illuminating. But I think, you know, as someone, I'm going to talk about this in a, in a minute, but someone who's very much invested in the historiography, I'm thinking about ethnicity and race in Russian and Soviet history. Yes. I think that Chris uh, Goff has contributed something like altogether novel and unique and gives us a new way of unpacking and untangling, but also thinking about the tangles, right, of, of ethnicity as being... Um, an absolute kind of like essential component of, of, of Soviet life. And the focus that she gives to um, non-titular nationality in particular, right? it really kind of shifts our perspective in such an important way. Um, but yeah, I, I'm absolutely of the camp that those, the award sweep that <laughs> was mm-hmm. well-deserved in this case. So those are the three the three items that I would and, call And our 90,
0: t- 90 second question, Bridget, what's the, <laughs> what's the book project? <laughs>
1: I am finishing um, a manuscript for the Russian Shorts book series that's edited by Steve Norris and Eugene Avrutin, Um That is an effort to write, and um, for a general as well as a specialist audience, um, a meaningful kind of treatment of how ethnicity was central to the Soviet experiment um, and experience from start to finish, from 1917 until the collapse in 1991. Um, my my overriding focus and emphasis in the manuscript is to think about the different ways in which ordinary people experienced differently ethnicity as central to their Soviet fates and their Soviet realities. So hopefully that will be out and actually in print in 2022.
0: Awesome. That's great. You've covered everything. Um, and I, I was really happy to talk to you, um, Bridget O'Keefe, about your book, Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia, just out published by Bloomsbury in 2021. Thanks so much, Bridget. Thank you thank for you, being Stephen. a friend. <laughs> <laughs> thank
1: you for being a friend. And thank you for being a good comrade, but a very excellent colleague to us all.
0: Absolutely. Um, and I'm Steven Siegel here on New Books Network until next time.